Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. that You should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, you know the phrase, the term, the concept, the idea of substitutionary atonement? That we're atoned for, that something has been, um, something that was wrong, something that was divided, has been made one. I don't know if this is the actual, where this word comes from, but I remember it by at one meant. Um, something that was divided or separated has been made one again, and, and in, in Christian theology or in Christian thinking, this happens because of a type of substitution, right? Because someone goes and receives something on our behalf. You can see where this would come in, right? Um, that Jesus suffered so that we don't have to, that there was a punishment uh, that was due us that we didn't receive because Jesus stepped into that place. There's certainly something true about this. There's also a, a way that this can get used to kind of let us off the hook. Jesus did it, so I don't have to do it. And that kind of misses part of the gospel. There's a man um, in the early 20th century. He's a Polish man uh, named, I'm going to mess this up. So if you speak Polish, I deeply apologize. <laughs> But Franciszek Gajawinewicz, so we'll just call him Frank. Um, this is Frank, and uh, on, the, on the right, that's him later in his life. Um, on the left is a picture of Frank when he was in Auschwitz. He was uh, brought into the camp by the Nazis simply for being Polish. There, he hadn't really committed any other crime, um, a lot of us, we think of uh, the Holocaust as, as being centered on the Jews, and it certainly was that, uh, but there were others who suffered, others who were persecuted during that time, and Poles were one of those groups. In the summer of 1941, uh, a prisoner, another prisoner, ran away from Auschwitz. And the way that the SS would often deal with this would be that they would take, um, in, because somebody ran away, um, they would then go take 10 more prisoners and execute them as a deterrent against people running away. And so they did this. This, this guy had run away, and they, they go and they line everybody up at morning roll call. They tell them what's happened, and he start, they start to pick. The commandant, the leader of the SS, starts to pick um, who's going to suffer the consequences. Frank was chosen to go into the hunger bunker. They would kill them by starvation, leaving them in this spot until he died. 
somebody stood up in his place. Somebody stepped in. Frank was crying out, I, I'm, I have sons, I have a family, I have a wife. And instead, only him, another raised his hand and stepped into his place. That other person's name was um, Maximilian Colby, or Raymond was his birth name. You can go to that next slide. It's only three slides, um, but I want to give you pictures of, of these guys. So this is Raymond um, on, the, on the left, kind of in his early life as a young man, uh, on the right as a young priest, and, and that may have been as he was going to Japan um, as a missionary. Early in his life, Raymond was a really uh, just devoted Polish dude. Uh, just kind of walking around Poland, doing devoted things. And uh, one day, he had this kind of interesting vision. This is a, he's pretty young. I think he's 13 or 14 at the time. And, and he has this vision, and he's offered these two crowns. One was white, and one was red. The two crowns kind of represented this, these two ways that his life might go. He might receive this sort of glory of purity, of that kind of living a pure and a holy life, that was the white crown. The other crown was red as a kind of um, an offer of a life of sacrifice and suffering and martyrdom, red for the blood. And he could have chosen either of those crowns, but instead in the vision what he says is, I want both. Give me a life of purity and a life of sacrifice. And on first reading, it's kind of like, that's a little greedy, man. Like, <laughs> just take one. Like, you're being offered one. One will be plenty, I promise you, right? But, but young Raymond, who became Maximilian later in his life, was kind of a maximalist in that way. He, he wanted more. He was the kind of guy who says, like, yeah, if this is good, then also give me this other thing. Right? You might call it a sort of godly greed. I, I want to be generous, but in addition to being generous, I also want to be patient. I, I want to be brave, but in addition to being brave, I also want to be wise. I want to be as like Christ as I can possibly be. Christ who was fully pure and who was fully martyred, gave his life for others. I want to live a life that is as much as like Jesus' life as I can. And as he grows up and leaves this vision. He lives a life of prayer and of service and of sacrifice. He, he was Catholic, like a lot of folks in Poland, and so he eventually becomes a, a priest and a Franciscan. Um, Franciscans known for taking a few vows. Poverty, right? But they have no personal belongings. Everything they have belongs to someone or something else. which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Chastity, giving up a life of family, right? And instead saying, I'm going to be devoted to the life of the church. I'm going to be devoted to a life of service, a life of mission, taking vows of obedience. And as well in the Franciscan order, oftentimes what they would do is they would say, I promise not to live anywhere for too long. This is part of the vow of, pro of poverty. Because even if you don't own a place, if, I mean, I imagine if you've ever rented a place for three or four or five or 10 or 20 years, you start to get a little possessive of it, right? 
even though you don't actually have the title, but it feels like yours. You've been there long enough, right? And so what they would do is often they'd kind of pick them up and move them just so they didn't put down roots. This kind of sounds sort of crazy for a lot of us, but really the idea is I want to be like Christ who in this life did not own anything. Even in the end, he didn't own his own life. In the end, he was even willing to give that away. And he didn't have that sense of possessiveness, of acquisitiveness. He goes and serves a mission in Japan, um, founded kind of a city, a sort of a small city, a monastery in Japan. And as I read about his life up to this point, there's just something he... He's one of those people who lives like spiritual things are actually true. You know? Like a lot of us, and I'm included in this, like we, we believe the stuff, right? And if you ask us straight out, we're like, yeah, yeah, of course that's real. Of course that's true. But like at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, sometimes don't we make decisions? Don't we reason? Don't we have a kind of logic that doesn't actually treat spiritual things like they're true? Don't we often get to a place where it's like, well, I need to make this decision for my financial security, or I need to make this decision for, you know, my own, I don't know, psychological well-being. And please, be financially secure. Have psychological well-being. But there's also something greater than both of those things. Those are not ultimate goods. Raymond... Um, about this time, went to Rome and was walking through St. Peter's Square. And as he was walking through St. Peter's Square, he saw a demonstration on the far side of the square by uh, Freemasons, um, which I don't know if you know much about Freemasons or not. Um, you know, they're the, they've got a little sticker with, on the back of the car, and I think you can even get a license plate or something <laughs> if you're a Freemason. Uh, for most of us, we sort of see it, and it's just kind of a social club. It's like the Elks or the Lodge or whatever. It's just kind of a place that people go and are a part of something. But Colby knew um, that there was a threat there. And uh, as he's walking to St. Peter's Square, he sees this demonstration of Freemasons. They actually had a banner out, and they had twisted a sort of um, classic Christian picture, which is Michael the Archangel. It's from the book of Daniel when he says, I was, I was contending with the devil, kind of far off in the far land. He sort of twisted the picture. The picture is typically Michael the archangel is stomping down the devil, right? Or he's sort of conquering over the devil. Um, and this is the picture we often get in the scriptures of the angels fighting God's battle on his behalf and, and triumphing. Well, they had turned the picture upside down so that instead of Michael conquering the devil, it was the devil conquering Michael, right? And he sees this and he's just kind of, Livid. The Freemasons were gaining sort of traction in, in Europe, and this is, you know, this is that like interwar period in between World War I and World War II, and they were finding a way um, to, to basically discredit. They're using mass media, the radio, and all this stuff that's starting to come out, saying, how can we discredit the church? Which ultimately is not about the church. Ultimately, it's really about Jesus. How can we make Jesus look bad? And every time we make somebody who represents Jesus in the world look bad, we end up making God himself look bad. And so here come the Freemasons. And, and Colby started something called the Militia Immaculata, the, the Immaculate Army. 
which was a group of people who through prayer and service and good work were out to sort of push back the enemies of Christ. It's kind of a lot for us, I think, to think of ourselves as joining an army. But that's what Colby wanted Christians to do. And part of what he understood was that in Freemasonry, which, again, if you go on YouTube and track down the, the conspiracy theory videos, like you're going to get to Freemasons real quick. It's like the third one, I promise you. Um, but what he understood is that there was something in that, which today we sort of see as conspiracy theories. But it has a very old pedigree. The pedigree is Gnosticism. It's something that the early Christians fought. It's something even that the roots of it are present in the New Testament. When the authors say to push against those who deny Christ, to push against those false teachers who say, for example, in 1 and 2 Timothy, that Jesus has already been raised, to counter those who would invite you into, Colossians says, like genealogies and sort of secret teachings. This is what the New Testament is talking about. Gnosticism is any sort of spiritual system or teaching that has secrecy as a primary pull and draw. If you just come one step closer in, you'll understand, right? If you just pay to get to the next level, then you'll get it. Well, if, if you just sort of graduate out of, you know, this thing where you are onto where the rest of us are, then, then you'll really know what's going on. I mean, it's like... Scientology, right, does all this kind of thing. It's, uh, let's see, <laughs> all sorts of systems use this. They tend to be pro-mind and pro-spirit and kind of anti-body in some way. And really what they're about is developing this kind of access and power and using that as a tool. Honestly, I... I think we see a lot of this in the way that we've seen and known and been dealing with conspiracy theories in our country over the last, I don't know, it seems like it's picked up fresh steam. The sorts of things that say, oh, if we could just follow that Reddit thread or if we just had access to what was really going on in that pizza parlor. Or the kinds of things that have resulted in violence. I mean, just in the last month, be for or against her, but, you know, we ought not be committing acts of violence against senators and their families, right? Those kinds of things do create this sense that if I could just get the real information, and if there weren't a cabal of people who are holding back the real information from me, then I could know the truth. And the pull of it, the draw of it, is this kind of Gnostic tendency to want to get to the secrets. There's somebody out there with secret knowledge. There's somebody out there with truth. You know? We've got to be careful because... What that ends up doing, and I don't know if you've noticed this, it ends up dividing the church. It ends up pitting Christians against Christians. Those who are on the end, those who get it, those who have sort of taken what it takes to understand that system, 
and those who are in sort of the conventional bucket. And it pits Christians against each other. It pits churches against each other. It, it pits families against each other for sure. We may not be dealing with a whole lot of Freemasons here or there, but it is actually something present in our world. You know, I kind of bring that up. It's an interesting sort of thing, I guess, about Colby's life. But if you're a member of this church, <laughs> there is a line in our manual, actually, that says, I won't belong to any secret society, such as the Freemasons. It's a really interesting line to me, because I, I just don't think about Freemasons unless Dan Brown is writing about them in some novel, right? And yet it's there, because we have this tendency as humans to want to try to create systems and orders of power. But the, the tendency and the pull of the gospel is to turn all of that upside down. The gospel doesn't keep secrets. The gospel's not about darkness and shadows. The gospel's about light and truth and openness. Right? And so as soon as we start to admit that stuff, we actually create a thing that is anti-gospel. In our faith, we will often live a similar kind of double life. We may not belong to a, a secret society, but sometimes we come to church and we perform church, right? We put on the face. We do the things. And then we go home and it's like, glad that's over, right? I have like six and a half days to just be me. Uh. <laughs> and I hope that that's not the case, but it does sometimes happen. So what's the goal there? The goal is not to sit and judge people because sometimes, sometimes fake it till you make it is a real thing, right? <laughs> sometimes it's good for us to practice in some ways. But let us not think that that's an okay place for us to live long term. If we're showing up on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or wherever we're here and we're kind of performing church, we're sort of doing the church thing, and then we go home and we're a different person, this is a problem that we should address. It's so critical that when we go home and we kind of let our hair down and whatever, we relax, that we still find a Christian there. That we still find somebody there who believes that Christ saves them. We still find somebody there who wants to be close to God. As holiness people, that's kind of what the Church of the Nazarene is. We are convinced, just like Colby was, that our faith, that our life in Christ is the truest part of who we are. And we want to be a people. We want to be a church that is not loved or engaged in because it's good for your social life, right? We want to be a church and a place where there's no divided loyalties, where there's no divided spirits, where there's no sense of like, I kind of do this, but again, then I've got this part of my life that's a secret that I don't want people to know about. Instead, we want to be the kind of place that says, bring all of who you are. And we already assume some of it's messed up. Like, we already assume some of it's broken. I assume that all of you here have very imperfect parts of who you are, just as you should assume that about me. But the other assumption, the more fundamental assumption, is that Christ seeks, knows, wants to love us in the midst of all of that. 
that there's no secrets hidden from the Lord and that he still loves us more than we could ever love ourselves and more than we could ever convince somebody else to love us. 1 John, um, the, the epistle, the letter that Marcy read from today, is kind of famous for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons it's famous is holiness people, John Wesley, um, folks in the Church of the Nazarene, others love this letter. And part of the reason we love this letter is because it doesn't pull punches. It says really intense things like, if you hate your brother, you know, you might as well just be a murderer, okay? Uh, if you have bad feelings about the people in the chair across from you, like, just pack it in and submit to a, li to a life sentence, right? It says really intense things. It's like you're in or you're out, there's light or there's dark, there's love or there's hate. And in the letter of 1 John, there's like no gray in between. And I, you know, I'm like a postmodern person. I want gray. Like I want to sort of like slowly grow and develop. And John's just like, no, none of that. You're in or you're out, light or dark. It's really intense. What's he saying in all of that? Is he saying that there's no growth in Christ? Is he saying that people don't kind of, I don't know, slowly or gradually wake up to the full truth? No, I don't think so. I think what he's saying is that we as Christians must not allow ourselves to just perform this idea of love and get ourselves off the hook of like, well, today I'm just sort of trying, but maybe next week or maybe next year it'll be okay. We don't get to just sort of slowly shade into faith in Christ. Love must become who you are. That's the call of Christ. That love would become all of who you are. And that everything you do would be born out of that love. And so for Colby, militancy, intensity, becomes a marker. In fact, they even said when he was in Auschwitz, you couldn't tell he was a priest. He didn't have a collar. He wasn't wearing a robe. Everybody was dressed the same. Everybody was starved the same. In fact, he was starved a little extra because he suffered from tuberculosis for most of his life. But they said you could tell that something was different about him because of the intensity in his eyes. Just what was in his eyes. Colby, as it becomes the 1940s and third, well, 30s and 40s, starts to see this Polish persecution. He and his monastery of Christians, of Franciscans, of Catholics, um, hid Jews in their monastery from the Nazis. He was eventually brought to the camps. And like I say, stripped down. You can go to that next slide just for... Stripped down and, and, and brought into that space. The Holocaust, which we all know about, is not unlike... It's a... I can hardly say this word, King Ahasuerus. It's like there's not enough consonants in that word. There's way too many vowels, Ahasuerus. King Xerxes from the book of Esther, right? The first recorded attempt to fully, well, I guess there's Pharaoh, uh, but fully exterminate the Jews, 
right? Fully just take God's people, put them into one place, and in one day or one week, wipe them out. It's not unlike what Hitler and the Nazis did in the 40s. But evil like that, wickedness like that, horror like that doesn't stay contained, it spreads. So that it's not just God's people, the Jews, it now is everybody who's handicapped, it now is everybody who has a different sexual identity, it's now everybody who is Polish or has this ethnicity. It's like, I can't just disagree with people, I can't just see people as different from me, I have to wipe them out in order to have any kind of presence in this world. And that kind of wickedness and violence really cannot stay contained or confined. And so it flows out into the Polish. That horror spreads. And when that one man escaped, when those ten people were lined up and selected, and Frank says, but I'm a family man, I have kids, I have a wife. Colby steps out and volunteers. And he volunteers with the words, I am a Catholic priest. Because he knows <laughs> that that's a death sentence. Because he knows that if he identifies himself as a Christian, and not just a Christian, but a member of the church that has stood up to Hitler, and not just a member of that church, but one who represents and has a kind of leadership in it, he knows that he'll become a target. But the commandant, the person leading this, simply could have said, I mean, this kind of thing went on in the camp all the time. He easily could have said, okay, well, now 11 people are going to go starve. Like, he didn't have to take this, this exchange. He didn't have to take this substitution. And yet, for some reason, he does. And he allows Frank to go free. Well, to go back to the, the camps. And Colby, who had been sick with TB most of his life, goes to the starvation chamber. And he sits in there for two weeks, which in itself is kind of miraculous. I mean, they're already starved up to the point where they can barely function. But he stays in that chamber for two weeks, leading, leading each of the other nine who died in prayer, walking with them, journeying with them, as they starve to death. Finally, they're so frustrated that Colby won't die that they give him an, an injection. And he dies there. I mean, it's, it's just so close to what Jesus says, right? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And yet it also reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 5. For, scarcely will, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think the question as we look at Colby's life and hopefully as we look at our own life is do we have that kind of love? Do we have the kind of love most of us I think do that we would die for somebody that we loved? Right? Especially if they have our genetic material. Someone in our family. Some of us might die for people we would, for someone we respect. Right? 
But for a righteous person, would you stand up and sacrifice yourself to die for somebody simply because they are righteous? How about a good person? Somebody who, like, does good things. Would you sacrifice yourself for them? But Colby pushes it further. Would you sacrifice yourself for a sinner? For somebody who doesn't deserve to die? Or, excuse me, who does actually deserve to die? And even more than that, for a stranger. This, as far as we know, is the only time that Colby and Frank ever met. This is the kind of militancy that loses itself in the mission for Christ. It starts by taking on something heroic and saying, you know, in Christ, I am actually made to do big things. I'm made, I'm created to do something heroic. I'm made and created not just to kind of live here and take up resources and die. Right? Not just to sort of exist with the minimal amount of suffering and then kick off into the grave. I'm made to do something that matters. I'm made to do something that will reverberate into eternity. And that doesn't just mean building big buildings or making a big impact. It means doing good, whether small or large, whether hidden or known. It means, like Colby saying, I want both. I want a life of purity, and I want a life of sacrifice. I want a life that's good, and I want to lay down my life for things and people that are good. I've sort of been thinking, I'll confess to you later if you want to know. Maybe it's because of a TV show I've been watching. But I've been thinking about marriage. <laughs> Indra's judging me hard right now. Uh, <laughs> And in particular, marriage among young people and the way that marriage is getting later and later and later, right? We're sort of, I think I got married at the average, which was like 26 um, or 27, somewhere in there. And I was sort of right in the middle. And, and slowly, like, it feels like marriages are getting pushed back. If you get married in your, like, early 20s now, people are like, oh, man, they're young and dumb and don't know what they're doing. But, like, that was normal, right? 22 is, like, not too old to get married. Come on. I mean, we are young and dumb and we don't know what we're doing, but what else are we going to do? Like, <laughs> and I think part of what's behind that is when we have this idea that marriage, because it's a huge lifelong commitment, this idea that marriage is somehow something that you have to be aware of when you throw yourself into. You cannot be aware of it. It doesn't matter if you're 90. You have no idea what is coming your way. Right? You also have no idea what's coming your way with singleness. That's just the nature of life. That's just what it is to live and to try to live a good life. And so we try to get our life all the way into place and have our savings account there and our Roth IRA and our house bought and everything is sort of like just, just so. And then all of a sudden I can introduce a human person into the picture. Right? I can convince somebody who wants to be a part of this. It's such a twisted view of the life that we're called to. Why? Because it's so boring. That is so boring. Like, we're called to heroism and adventure and something good. And that involves an element of the unknown. That involves something that we can't wrap our head around. And if you're like, I got to get my Wall Street job first so that I can finally have kids like that, who cares? 
That's been done so many times. But a good life of people who love each other and are willing to love each other and to sacrifice and to say, look, I'm going to give up something by marrying you, and I don't know what it is. I convinced my wife to marry me. I convinced her to marry me when I was a single pastor living in a town of 2,000 people. It was like four hours from an airport, okay? <laughs> because she wanted an adventure. <laughs> she wanted, and she's been heroic in the midst of it, you know? Like that's, but that's what life in Christ is. We throw ourselves into something that we don't know, not stupidly, not unwisely, but with the trust and the knowledge that this stuff only works out as we continue a life of faith. And then, once we've embraced, once we've embraced the adventure, we kill the passion. This is the first John thing. You know, you're going along and you hate your brother. Well, if you hate your brother, if you hate your sister, you're still a murderer. What's John saying? He's saying, don't let that stuff just live in you like it's normal. Sin is not normal. We're not created for sin. We're created for glory. We're created for union with God and with one another. And so when we just let that stuff live and go, eh, I'm only human. I'm only human. No. God built us for perfection and for life with him. That's what heaven is. That's what life in Christ is, when we don't hold anything back. We embrace the heroic. We kill the passion. And then we wait for the moment. It's probably the most famous line from Esther, Esther chapter 4. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, is trying to get her to go on this reality show to see who marries the king, right? That's what the book's about. It's about a reality. I mean, it's a beauty competition, and the winner gets this awful husband, um, <laughs> right? But what he tells her to do, and the way he tells her to do it, he says, maybe you were made for such a time as this. Maybe you were made for such a time as this. Maybe, just maybe, all that adventure you've been loving and all of those passions you've been killing have been brought you to this moment where God is going to call you to something unique and special, where God's going to call you to step out, where God's going to call you to put yourself on the line. And maybe it'll be sacrifice and you end up dying like Colby. Or maybe you save a nation like Esther. Maybe you do it as a poor, impoverished, imprisoned priest. Or maybe you do it as the richest woman in the world. But God's going to call you to something. And if you're not ready for the moment, you just might miss it. But there's one more thing I think we have to say here. That man at the beginning, Frank, <laughs> I didn't glitch out. That's the best I can do with his name. He says in the camps, I'm a family man, I'm a family man. When he gets home, both of his sons have died in the Allied bombing of Europe. He never got to go home and be with his family. Just be with his wife again, but not his boys. 
He lived till he was 94 years old. He was present at the canonization of Maximilian Kolbe in the 1980s. He died in 1995. I was eight when this man, who was saved in the camps by Kolbe's sacrifice, finally died. And all that time, he remembered his years in the camps and the Catholic priest who laid down his life so that he could live his. He told his story. He remembered Colby. And because of him, he had this deep sense of Christ's substitutionary love. And so this is the thing. Substitutionary atonement does not get us off the hook. Yes, it frees us from the consequences of our sin, right? But by freeing us from our sin, it puts us on the hook to love the people around us. By freeing us from, from ourselves, it binds us to others. And it's so important that we don't miss that. Because if, if Christ's love and death on the cross is just something that lets me be me, and doesn't actually connect me to the world that Christ died to save, then I've used that fact to live a selfish life. Some of us may be called, I'm convinced some of us are called, to lay down our lives the way Colby did. To put ourselves out there and say, Lord, I don't know what heroism it is that you're calling me to, but I'm going to be ready for it. And some of us may be called, like Frank, to witness to the love that we've experienced to speak truthfully the grace that has come our way when we weren't expecting it, when we didn't deserve it, when we had no right to think that it would come our way. So whether you go out from this place as a martyr or a witness today, go knowing that Christ is with you, that he will uphold you, that he will sustain you, that he will give you the words to say as you lean into his presence and his love today. Let me pray. Lord God, I am so deeply thankful for the communion of the saints, for the fact, Lord God, that it's not just us here in this room who are somehow the true church, but it's everyone that you've called, it's everybody who has responded to you with the grace that they had. Lord, it's... It's everybody who has sought you out. Father, I, I pray that us here, that we would be a, a witness to your love and mercy. That whether it's here in, in Rancho Cordova, in Sacramento, Lord, whether it's in our families or even in our own hearts, that the things that go on in our lives would be a sign of your grace, would be a sign, Lord, that you in your mercy have conquered sin and death and you've called us to be your image, your emissaries, your soldiers in this world to extend that victory everywhere we go. May we do it in prayer. May we do it as we renounce ourselves. Lord, may we do it in worship here as we come to the table. We thank you, and we love you, and we want to serve you in your name. Amen. Amen.